And I will invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Our final night in Philippians chapter 2. And we uh, have spent a good amount of time focusing upon the concepts of this chapter, uh, which have been very focused. And, and the interesting thing about it is, uh, this evening, as, as I stepped into my study on this uh, several weeks ago and was, was uh, preparing it, I kind of had the, the notion that, okay, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a, uh, of kind of a parenthetic, uh, you know, as Paul talks about sending Timothy and Epaphroditus back and uh, all of these things, and he's kind of, he's, he's talked about some things in chapter two, and now he's transitioning to a new thought, and in between he's, he's giving a few, um, he's giving a few miscellaneous instructions, but as I studied it, I don't believe that Paul at any point within the scope of these uh, several verses ever deviates from the focus that he has on his call unto a selflessness and unity within the body. We are coming out of a time in our society when sickness has been very much on the top of many people's minds. And society has taken extreme measures to avoid this particular illness because of the perceived threat that it posed to life. Because of what we understood and believed about the danger of the virus, we are indeed still exercising various degrees of caution to keep ourselves from being exposed. And though the virus, of course, is too small to be seen, the symptoms of the virus are evident and, and, and in many cases even quite virulent. For some, the end of those symptoms has even been death. Now, we find in Scripture that it is not uncommon or inappropriate to take uh, that concept of, of sickness and uh, make it a, a fitting analogy to the, to the idea of sin. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when I'm giving the gospel, I will use that as an illustration, the idea of sin the, uh, as, as, a, as a sickness. I'll talk about the fact that when you have a fever, you've heard this illustration before from me most likely, the illness is not the fever itself, right? The fever is not the problem. The fever is a symptom of the problem. When I have a fever, I know that my body is fighting a virus. I know that my body is fighting an infection. I know that my body has raised its core temperature in order to fight off something. And so when I have a fever, I recognize that that fever is a symptom of an illness, and I go to seek out what that illness might be. Is it a virus that my body just has to fight off? Am I going to need an antibiotic in order to help my body fight this off? Uh, am I, is, is there going to need to be some intervention in order to, to help me deal with the, the things at hand? And so we, we can take this concept of illness, and it can become a very fitting illustration of sin. Sin is in the heart, unseen to men, but known by the symptoms that manifest in the lives of a man. And we can use our familiarity and caution with relation to physical illness to connect our minds to the concepts of spiritual illness in a very real way. And that's what Paul is going to do, I believe, this evening in our time together in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 16 through 30, get all the way through to the end of the chapter. The Bible says this in verses 15 and 16. We did cover these last week. We'll, we'll, we'll speak to these as unto transition. 
He says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. As Paul requests of the church the uh, various distinctions, obedience and yieldedness and selflessness, he first and foremost requests this for the sake of the testimony of the Lord. Remember, we talked about that last week, that the very root, the very foundation of our testimony in Christ is our unity one with another, right? Uh, that, that this is what we find in the scriptures, that if we are not unified, if we are living in selfishness, if we are, if we are living in a manner that is just like the world around us, Regardless of our external trappings, if our inward man, if there's bickering and murmuring and, and disputings, as we talked about last week, then the world is going to look and they're going to say, wow, you've got all these external trappings, but, but deep down you're no different than I am. And we recognize that we are still sinners, just as they are, right? We, we are no different in this flesh and bones. But yet we also recognize that in Christ we have not just been called to live a different life, we have been changed. We have been made new. And so Paul, first and foremost, speaks of this testimony. But then notice he doesn't just say, do this for your testimony. He then goes on to say, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul wanted to have some measure of satisfaction that the work that he had put into the church had not been lost or had not fallen upon deaf ears. When you read personal things like this in Scripture, they, they can give you great insights into various elements, not just of a man's character, but, but of, of um, human nature. In this case, we see Paul give insight into his own mind and heart. But more generally here, if I can say it this way, Paul is giving a, a measure of insight into the heart of a minister into the heart of one whose job it is to pour their life into another. Fathers and mothers, you know what I'm talking about. You know what it is to be a minister to your children. You know what it is to pour yourself into them and desire that, they, that you might see the fruit in them to know that you have not labored in vain, to, to uh, see the, the fruit of your labor when you talk with your children about something, when you, when you discipline your children in a manner uh, or, or fashion, and then you begin to see the fruit of that effort, the fruit of that discipline, the fruit of that uh, determination to obey bearing fruit in their lives. Everyone in life wants to know that they've made a difference and wants to know that the investments that they have made count for something. Everyone wants to see those particularly whom they love and in whom they, in whom they have invested bear the fruit of that investment. And of course, ministers are no different, except that our results are often very elusive and can be very long-term. The things I say tonight might not bear fruit in the hearts of some of you for years. When finally, there is a merging of your, your place in life and your context of life and your spiritual maturity level and various elements of what is being taught. Now, it's been interesting, we talked about it a little bit this morning, how relevant Philippians 2 has been to the whole situation we've gone through in the last several months. God often does that. I've seen that any number of times as it relates to uh, the, the messages that the, 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 the books of the Bible the Lord has laid upon my heart. 
as we have seen them be needed for a particular time in a particular place. But with some of you, uh, the, the nitty-gritty of, the, of these calls unto unity and unto selflessness will not bear fruit for some time when they really are brought to bear in your life. And yet, as we consider these things, we recognize that whether or not I see that fruit being born, there's a measure of encouragement in those opportunities when they arise to do so. The ministry of the spiritual isn't always readily apparent through some major scene of revival or a strong movement of the Spirit of God like at Pentecost. Fishers of men, unlike fishers in real life, don't exactly get to carry their catch back on a string with them at the end of a day. The sheepdog doesn't necessarily have the luxury of gauging his results in the number of sheep, but rather in the pleasure of the shepherd. But make no mistake, ministers are deeply consoled by the hope and expectation of that day of Christ when we hope that we can at least be present to see what fruit was born out in the lives of the many unto whom we ministered. That those tracts that were handed out, that that time that I've spent in the jail talking to people who leave and I don't even know what's going on in their mind and who I never get to see again, that just perhaps, just maybe, some of them might end up in glory and I will get to see their faces there one day and it will not be because of me, it will be because of the Lord, but just perhaps I may have been a part of the process either of clearing the field, of sowing the seed, of watering it, and then on rare occasions, of course, of reaping that harvest. And it is this hope that it's not essential to the minister, just as it's not necessarily essential to the parent or any other uh, ministry of sorts, but boy, it helps, doesn't it? It really helps when you start to see fruit. We read a letter this evening from the, from the missionaries in the Netherlands, right? And he said, as we were talking, as, as our conversation drifted because of this one particular person in the church to this idea of eternal salvation, of, of the fact that you can be secure in your salvation, my people started standing up and giving testimony of, what, of their own eternal security, and my wife and I realized that some of the things that we've been teaching have taken root, and boy, isn't that nice to see. It's a consolation, and Paul is saying the same thing here. He's seeking unto that consolation. It's that hope that compels us, like a father who patiently instructs his son in the way that he should go, and then lovingly looks into his eyes and says, now son, do as I taught you. And then you see him do it that way, and, and, and you have that sense of satisfaction within you. Paul says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And don't divorce this idea from Paul's exhortation in this chapter. As Paul is exhorting them unto some measure of fruit that he could rejoice in, he's exhorting them unto unity. And we'll see that very clearly as we continue. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Paul speaks here of his expectation. Uh, well, he's, he's sitting in prison at this time, right? 
And as he sat in prison, he was living under the suffering of the ministry. He had given his life. Of course, he's not dead. And, and, and we presume that he does not even stay in prison interminably, right? We believe that he gets out after he wrote Philippians. This would not be like 2 Timothy, where it's his final time in prison. Um, but he, had, he was there in prison. He did not know if he was getting out or not. He desired to. He had a measure of confidence he would. But he did not know. He has given his liberty and thus, in that sense, his life for the cause of the faith of which this church had been a direct beneficiary. He gave his life that he might pour into them this spiritual benefit. But he says he did it with joy and would rejoice in them and with them because their faith was worth his suffering. Their faith was worth his life. Their faith was worth his investment. And they ought to rejoice, he says, in this as well. Not to grieve at his bonds, but rather to rejoice that such fruit might be borne by the grace of God through the life and ministry of Paul. That God saw fit to use Paul, that God sees fit to continue to use Paul, though Paul was in prison and he was seeing good fruit there as well. And that they would rejoice with him just as he is rejoicing with them. See, ministry is people, right? Anytime you're investing in people into the spiritual, that is ministry. And for someone like myself, you are my life's calling. This building is not my life's calling. You are my life's calling. I have been gifted by God to be a pastor teacher. I have been called by God to be a minister. But neither of these is effectual if there's no one to hear, right? if there's no one to minister unto. I'm a father, I pour myself into my children. I'm a husband, I pour myself into, what? into my wife. I'm a minister, I pour myself into my ministry. None of those are possible if I don't have them, right? If I'm, if I, if, if I'm not married, I can't pour myself into my wife. If I'm not a father, I can't pour myself into my children. And if I don't have people to minister unto, then I'm not ministering. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. To whatever degree a man's labors define him, to that degree, Paul recognized that his efforts would be in vain. His labor would have been in vain if the Philippian church took all of those things to which they had been built and cast them aside due to the disunity that was among them. And the point of this is not necessarily to make anybody in here feel any sort of pressure. I'm not saying, well, you better act a certain way because the choices you make reflect upon me or on my ministry or that you have to live up to my expectations. Absolutely not. But as with anything in life, we recognize that our choices do affect others that children, the choices you make, affect your parents. Your parents have invested in you. And the choices you make are going to touch them deeply because of the tremendous amount of investment they have put into you. The actions we take in any context have ripple effects upon those that we know and love. And of course, no true minister would desire that the primary motivation for anyone to do anything within the context of their ministry would be to please him or to live up to his expectations, uh, that would be 
wrong of a minister to, to think such a thing. But it doesn't change the fact that I have a bulletin board in my office of people who have written me notes saying that they've been affected by my ministry because I need that bulletin board on certain days. I need to look up on that bulletin board and recognize that something has happened through my ministry. And I shouldn't need that, right, in, in, in the faith sense, but in the feet of clay sense, I need that bulletin board. And so Paul speaks of these things. And then he, he kind of narrows it down a little bit more to the church of Philippi, and he says this in verses 19 through 24. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are, of Jesus, are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that would be Timothy, that as a son with, his, with the father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see what it, uh, how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Early in the book and throughout our time in 1 Timothy, and now into 2 Timothy as we're covering it on Sunday mornings, um, we've discussed the unique relationship between Paul and Timothy, right? We know and have established already the confidence that though Paul would often call Timothy his own son in the faith, that Timothy was not Paul's biological son. Uh, there's no evidence that Paul and, and Timothy were biologically related. As a matter of fact, there's a good amount of evidence to the contrary. Even here, um, he is not explicitly described as being Paul's son, but rather that their relationship is as a son with the father, right? And so we see these things. Um, Paul uh, and Timothy were, were very close, not just in ministry, but in mindset. And he had determined in absence of himself to send Timothy to them shortly, that he may hear of how they're doing, whether or not they've taken to heart his exhortations, corrected the divisions which were threatening the church and ministry, and thus find some measure of comfort within his heart. He is, for all that Paul talks about joy in this book, and he talks about joy a great deal in this book, you can, you can see from his writing the concern that Paul has in his heart over these things. And he tells them that he's sending Timothy because there's no other minister who is so like-minded as it relates to the church, who would share Paul's burden for their unity and obedience in this unique and particular way. Timothy was there with Paul when the church in Philippi was planted. That was Timothy's first journey with Paul, in fact. And so Timothy was there to see that church built. Timothy knew the names of the people who were in that church. Timothy probably knew Epaphroditus as Paul did when he came and, and, and brought these, this news to Paul along with their gift. He had ministered there. He had seen their growth. And so he was personally invested in their success. And may I say to this point, in this age of media and of technology, You'll have a lot of people, you've perhaps seen it before, where they'll, they'll get onto YouTube or they'll get onto the podcast or, or radio or TV and, and they'll, they'll look at their audience and they'll say, you know, I just want to let you know that we love you here at this ministry and we want to see you grow and we want your best. And they're being absolutely sincere in that. They're being absolutely sincere in that. But there is no replacement for a minister being among you. There is no replacement for a minister being with you. This is why on all of our videos, it begins with a disclaimer on YouTube. 
telling those who watch that we are happy that they're benefiting, but that my preaching is no replacement for a local church ministry. Because while any minister can come into your home through the airwaves and tell you what the Bible says, there's a lot of people a whole lot better than I am at that that you can get on any given Sunday. The spiritual guidance and support that is essential to the Christian walk and spiritual growth can only be done by having someone there with you. Someone who knows you. Someone who can sit there and hold your hand when you're going through a hard time and weep with you when you weep and rejoice with you when you rejoice. Someone who can see the fruit of your life. Someone who can help you along the journey. Someone who can recognize the, 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 the response and, and come up in love and say, you know, this, there, there's something wrong in, in this response. Or, or, or confirm you in, in a right decision and come up and say, hey, brother, you made the right decision today. Someone who can see you over time and look at you and say, you know what? You may not see your growth, but I do. That's valuable. When I was younger, down in our basement, in our first house, our house on Oberlin, we call it. That uh, was the street name. Uh, we had one of those uh, two by fours, you know, one of the studs in the basement where they would mark off our height, right? And so you'd go and you'd stand and stand real tall and you'd do this and they'd say, no, no, no. You know, and, and you're trying to get that little extra bit there and nope, nope, heels against the wall. And then they'd mark you off, right? And then they'd put your name and they'd put the date. And they did it for my sister and they did it for me and they did it for my younger sister for a very short time before we moved to a different house in her day. Um, but, and we didn't, we didn't continue that, that process in, in the other house. But I, I never felt as though I was growing, right? I mean, you put your pants on one day and you're like, Mom and Dad, these pants shrunk. And, you know, you've got that thing going on and all of a sudden your shoes are tight and my shoes are starting to hurt me. I don't know what's wrong. Well, my, you know, my parents knew what was wrong. My feet were getting bigger, right? My parents knew what was wrong. My, my legs were growing. My, 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 my parents understood that I was growing, but I, I, I never saw myself grow. I didn't wake up one day, stand up and say, there's, there's a weird perspective here. All of a sudden, everything seems farther away from me. And, you know, it's, it's not like that, right? You just live. You don't realize you're growing. You just grow. But it is kind of nice, especially in the spiritual, isn't it? When you feel as though, have I made any progress? Is anything happening? When somebody can come alongside you who loves you, who has been with you, who has been ministering unto you, and say, guess what? You have grown, and I have seen that growth, and I know you're growing. You've made real progress here. Keep going. That's helpful. I had a conversation not too long ago about the nature of college today, how many colleges are moving to an online uh, only or distance learning format. Uh, it's been like that for years. And then, of course, the virus that we've been going through has kind of uh, continued along that way. And, and I had mentioned how I really feel as though there might be a great benefit for society as a whole in this, in that when you're, when you're steeped in that college environment, um, it becomes significantly more impactful to you than when you're just, um, you're just distance learning. And so as most of the colleges around the, the, the nation today are, um, uh, are just indoctrination centers, right, um, for groupthink and leftist ideologies and Marxism, I said there could be a real benefit to society in these, these children who are listening to the professors online, but they're staying rooted in their homes and in their families and in their churches and in their society. And so they can see much easier the disconnect between what they're 
what their professors are saying and what the real world is like that you can't see if you're on campus, if you're inculcated, if you're completely immersed in the culture. Well, if we can take even that same idea and connect it to what we could call distance learning in church, right? There's a big difference, is there not, between you sitting down on a Sunday morning, clicking on a YouTube link, or, or, or walking, uh, you know, working throughout the week and, and listening to a sermon on a podcast. There's a big difference between that and coming and immersing yourself in the body of Christ on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening, on a Tuesday evening. And the reason why is because you and I don't just need information, do we? Information will never be enough for you to become the kind of believer you need to be. You need application. You need faith. You need wisdom. You need information put into action. And that comes through investment. That comes through accountability. And that comes through a mutual effort to become what God would have us to be, to take the information that we have and to use it for God's glory. And ministry demands this quality of investment. And it was for this sake, for this reason, that Paul was determined, as we see here, to send Timothy because Timothy had invested in them. He naturally cared for their state, and so he would do what was best for them as an extension of his personal investment in them and his personal love for them. And the point of Timothy coming was that Paul wanted to minister with a personal investment in the spiritual lives of God's people, but he was not able to come yet because, of course, he was in prison. He wanted to help them through some of this disunity to guide them along the path of finding their way, but he could not because of his particular circumstances. Now, there are several other distinctions about Paul's determination to send Timothy here. First, back in verse 20, when Paul states that there's no other man like-minded in regard to the state of the church, he adds to that statement in verse 21 saying, all seek their own, not the things which are, of, of, uh, which are Jesus Christ's. And we see in this statement perhaps a measure of discouragement. I don't, I don't really know exactly what the tone is of it. But Paul gives us very little context to understand what he's, who he's speaking of as he says, all seek their own and not Jesus Christ. Why is it that he had to send Timothy because there was no other man like-minded that, that would naturally care for their state for all seek their own. So this is, this is deeper than just Paul saying, Timothy knows you the best. It's deeper than that. There's, there's some reason why Timothy was the only one Paul could turn to, it seems. For all seek their own and not that of Jesus Christ. It is perhaps the case that Paul had no other ministers available to him, and he would desire naturally that Timothy remain and help him while sending another minister, but he was unable to find anyone who would put the needs of Paul ahead of his own priorities. I, I should say the needs of the Philippian church above his own priorities. Let me put it that way. It is perhaps worse than that. Perhaps it is that Paul had few other ministerial resources at all. Not just that, that um, they weren't available, but that those who had formerly partnered with him had now forsaken him. This would perhaps explain why Paul said in 2 Timothy, uh, why he called Timothy to not be ashamed of his testimony, right? Why is it that Paul had to exhort not to be ashamed of his testimony? Well, maybe there were any number of ministers who were ashamed of Paul's testimony, 
who saw Paul's arrest again as um, some measure of failure on his account. Now, of course, Paul's arrest in 2 Timothy was not the same as this arrest. So timetable-wise, we're, we're not exactly sure what it is that Paul is speaking of here. But either way, we find in Paul's address, it seems some measure of discouragement. And so a determination to send Timothy, because Timothy is stuck with him. So then Paul hoped to send Timothy shortly. And then finally in verse 24, he also hoped that he himself would come soon and see them. We do have a general degree of confidence that Paul was released from this imprisonment that he is in as he writes this and was able to visit various churches before his final imprisonment. Paul then turns his attention uh, to another minister in verses 25 and 26. And we read this. Yet I supposed it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. And he that ministered to my wants, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. As Paul writes these words, it becomes apparent that he had sent that he had sent this letter or this communication to the church by way of Epaphroditus so that as he spoke of sending Timothy, he reflected on something he intended to do. So Timothy, Epaphroditus comes with the letter. He hands it to the church of Philippi. And in that letter, it says, Timothy's coming, right? And then I hope to be coming after that as well. But as he spoke of sending Epaphroditus, he spoke of something that has already been done. And, and we, we see this somewhat here. Yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. I supposed it necessary, right? That's in the aorist tense, something that already happened. I supposed it necessary that this be done. Not I suppose it is necessary to do this in the future, but I thought it was necessary, so I'm sending Epaphroditus. So I have sent Epaphroditus to you. So we see that in the language here that Epaphroditus has been sent to them, that as they're reading this, Epaphroditus should in fact be among them. And he says he felt it necessary to do so because Epaphroditus longed for them to comfort them as the church had heard that he had been sick. Now, we have spoken of Epaphroditus already, but let's remind ourselves of what we know about this man. Paul speaks of him again in Philippians chapter 4 and mentions that Paul's needs were met by the things which the Philippian church sent to him by Epaphroditus. To this end, what we understand, what we would believe, it's, it is a bit of an assumption, but it's a fairly confident one as far as interpretation is concerned is that the Philippian church had commissioned Epaphroditus to take uh, support, whatever that would mean, food, clothing, uh, money, whatever, and to take it from Philippi to Rome. And Epaphroditus goes from Philippi to Rome, and then he gives these things to Paul, and Paul says, how is the church? And as we recognize from Philippians 1, and then here in Philippians 2, Epaphroditus says, the church is not doing real well. There is... This, there's, this, there's murmurings and disputings right now in the church over things. And this deeply grieved Paul as it was also a grief to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is there ministering to Paul and at some point Epaphroditus gets sick. And word is sent back to the church of Philippi that Epaphroditus, uh, who was perhaps somewhat influential in the church, maybe an elder in the church, we don't know exactly, um, but, but was, was deeply cared for by this church, they heard that he was sick. And, of course, that would have been greatly disturbing to the church. 
So then he heals, as we'll see in a moment, and then Paul sends him back, reluctantly, however, because of how much of a blessing Epaphroditus had been to him. Paul describes Epaphroditus as my brother, an expression of confidence and love in their mutual bond in Christ, as my companion in labor, an expression that Paul saw Epaphroditus as a co-laborer for the gospel, and so a man truly yielded to the Lord. That was not a, a, um, a flippant title, like we see in politics, uh, maybe more, more in, in, uh, in British politics still than it is in, in American politics. American politics has always kind of been a little bit less polite, but um, you know, the idea of people in, in grave opposition, opposition standing up and saying, my esteemed colleague, right? And um, they're, they're, they're saying this even though they're about to just totally tear the guy to shreds. Uh, but they, they are very polite in doing so. Um, this is not that, right? Paul, Paul does not do that. Paul does not uh, talk about his, his fellow servant and co-laborer in the Lord just uh, to be polite. He is reflecting here the way that he sees Epaphroditus. He calls him a fellow soldier, which means he regarded Epaphroditus as being a man who fought the fight of faith. This man was engaged in the fight. He was engaged in the suffering of the gospel. He was engaged on the battlefield for Christ. He was not just existing as a Christian, but this man was doing the work. And then finally, he, he says, and your messenger. This is the word apostle in the Greek, though we would have absolutely no reason to assume that it is the sense of authority or office of the apostle. Much to the, uh, much to the contrary, this word apostle was regularly used simply to speak of a messenger, one who would bring a message, right? And so in this case, we would understand this to be not that they saw him as having apostolic authority, but simply as they saw him as being uh, a messenger that was sent from the church of Philippi to Paul. He was your messenger to me. He was your minister to me. He was your representative to me. And as their representative, Paul says he did a great job at encouraging and serving Paul, so much so that Paul didn't want to let him go. He didn't send Epaphroditus back because he wanted to send him back. He sent Epaphroditus back because the church had heard and knew that he had been sick, even unto death, and they would be very concerned about his health and well-being, and they wanted to see him again, and so Paul needed to send Epaphroditus back. And he elaborates on the gravity of this illness in verse 27. He says there, For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul tells them Epaphroditus was sick even near to death. This illness would have taken place, of course, after Epaphroditus had arrived in Rome and had told Paul of the precarious position of the church or condition of the church, after which he became ill, and by Paul's testimony, he nearly died. Paul, counting it as a personal mercy of God upon his own heart, that Epaphroditus was spared. As such an event would have heaped upon Paul, as he says here, sorrow upon sorrow. Now, I would really like us to consider this statement because it was this statement when I read it that convinced me that Paul has not changed his context here, that Paul has not changed his focus here that he is still focused upon the unity of the church, that he is still focused upon the church needing to make these decisions in order to bring themselves back into a selfless unity. Consider this statement for a moment as a means of gleaning just a little bit more insight into how serious the issues of the church to Philippi were 
to Paul. We don't have a laundry list of Paul's sorrows in this time of imprisonment. As a matter of fact, as you read chapter 1, we see a lot of joy, don't we? Paul is rejoicing in them. He's rejoicing in, in the work that God is doing. He's even rejoicing in that his enemies are, are using, the, using the attempts to destroy him for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when his, as his enemies, are, they're preaching the gospel in order to try to heap onto his bonds more suffering. And he says, praise God, the gospel is getting out as they preach the gospel, hoping to destroy me. <laughs> like the guy is rejoicing a lot. But interesting, he doesn't just say, I, I, I have joy in everything. I have, joy in, I have joy in everything, but then Epaphroditus got sick and I had sorrow. He said, when Epaphroditus got sick and was nigh unto death, it would have heaped sorrow upon sorrow if he had died. There's some other sorrow that Paul references here. We know that Paul's ministry was flourishing in Rome. He was not denied visitors. The gospel was flourishing. To this end, it seems likely that the sorrow of which Paul speaks, upon which Epaphroditus' death would have added the sorrow upon the sorrow, was this. Epaphroditus was sick nigh unto death. And if he, my brother from the church of Philippi, had died, while also I see a church that's sick, and if you stick with this, if, if you don't correct this illness, you too are nigh unto death, that Epaphroditus would more or less become a metaphor of the danger of the church. The church was divided, selfish, seeking their own selves above others in the church. And this contrast just shows, shows just how dangerous disunity is. That Paul reflected upon the potential of Epaphroditus' death with a similar measure of sorrow as to the state of the church of Philippi. That it would have been insult to injury, sorrow upon sorrow, that as I, I, I fear for the health of your church because you're sick right now because of murmurings and disputings, and then Epaphroditus got sick. And he's one of the guys in the church who is also grieved about this. And now here he is sick nigh unto death. And so I'm sorrowful for the church and the people of the church who have a spiritual illness going on right now. And then here's this man who is sick nigh unto death. And it would have been sorrow upon sorrow as it relates to my love for the people of the church of Philippi. And it is perhaps that Paul is even using, and that's what I'm connecting here. This is an interpretive this is an interpretive step for me that Paul may be using the sorrow of Epaphroditus' illness metaphorically to reflect upon the real possibility that the church of Philippi is also sick nigh unto death. I wouldn't normally state that, but within the context of this chapter, I think that that's contextually interpretively sound. It makes more sense to me, actually, than Paul just kind of going off on this random tangent in between exhortations. So Paul desired that the Lord would have mercy in bringing the church of Philippi back to health through essential unity in the same way that God showed mercy in bringing Epaphroditus back to health and into unity with him once again. So Paul says in verse 28, 
I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Paul sent Epaphroditus the more carefully. That word carefully, not, not meaning particularly with care in, in the sense of other ways that we've seen it used in the scriptures, but more so quicker, quickly, hasty, sooner rather than later. And that in order that the church might rejoice. And notice this, that Paul may be less sorrowful. Take careful note of what Paul is saying here by way of his pronoun usage. Paul didn't say, I sent Epaphroditus to you because you're concerned for his state so that you can be the less sorrowful because you see him healthy. He didn't say that. He said, I don't want Epaphroditus to leave, but I need Epaphroditus to leave so that he can get to you so that I can be less sorrowful. Huh? Wait a minute. Think through it with me. The reason why Paul is saying that is because by Epaphroditus getting there, by this letter of the, the, the epistle of the Philippians getting there, and Epaphroditus ministering out of the instruction of Paul in this letter, Paul will then hear, Lord willing, good news of the church's realignment and repentance. And thus he will be less sorrowful, though he doesn't want Epaphroditus to leave. Paul sent Epaphroditus so that they might see him again. They might rejoice. They might get this letter. They might be exhorted by Epaphroditus himself and they might come back into the unity. So then just as God's mercy upon Epaphroditus lifted the burden of that sorrow off of Paul's shoulders. So the sorrow upon sorrow did not happen. The one sorrow, the danger of the sorrow of Epaphroditus sick nigh unto death was lifted off his shoulders, but there's still a sorrow on his shoulders. And he says, I'm sending Epaphroditus to you that that sorrow might be lifted off my shoulders as well. And that is the sorrow of the danger of di disunity of your sickness that is nigh unto death. And the burden of the sorrow would be lifted off of him. Verses 29 and 30. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. So Paul calls the church to receive him with gladness. And this call to receive him is not just taken back. I mean, obviously, he's a part of the church there, right? This is the idea of accept his authority, accept his message, accept what he is bringing with him. When Paul calls for someone to receive a minister, he's saying, listen to them, heed them. And he says he bears the marks of a minister of Christ in that he was on his deathbed for Christ, but he didn't regard his life in order to do what was commissioned unto him for you unto me. And he did so in order that he might minister the service uh, toward Paul that the church desired of him. The point of this not being that Epaphroditus earned great accolades. It's not that as if he says, receive him and honor him, build him a little statue and, and uh, uh, you know, rename your, your baptistry in his honor or something. I don't know. Um, he's it, it, not saying that, right? What he's saying is regard him, listen to him, what he has to say to you. And the church has no duty to respect any man simply for existing or because of what he says. But when a man steps out for Christ, he bears that fruit. He carries those marks of maturity and st stability and effectiveness for Christ. The church would do well to identify such men and to make them leaders and to give them esteem within the body. 
so that the church can look more like them and less like those who, as Paul said in verse 21, seek their own and not the things that are Jesus Christ's. When we identify affirmed men church, it is our privilege to honor those men, not in the sense of idolatry, not in the sense of lifting up the man himself, but to recognize that men who are affirmed, that men who are faithful, ought to have a place of influence among us. And it's not, has nothing to do with them, and it has everything to do with the fact that he's the kind of man that you would want your, the other men of the church to be like. That he's the kind of man that you can trust to make decisions as unto the Lord. And so you put that man in a position where he can make those decisions, where he can be that influence. Those are the kind of men you want leading the church. You want role models in the church. So don't let those men pass by. Don't let them just move on. When we see those men, those men ought to be identified, not lifted up or elevated in some carnal way, but simply recognizing that those are the kind of men that we want to lead and to be examples within our body. Now, as we close today, there has been many lessons found throughout these verses, but I highlight that which I believe Paul is highlighting here, and I do believe this is what Paul is highlighting in context as an extension of his exhortation to the church to bear the mind of Christ. Epaphroditus was sent by the church to minister to Paul, to bless him with the provisions that they had sent unto him, sending once and again to meet his need. And while there he reported about the state of the church and that it was not a glowing report as it related at least to this particular area and that particular area was murmurings and disputings, disunity among them. Then Epaphroditus got sick, nigh unto death, and was raised up by the mercy of God. And Paul uses this picture of Epaphroditus being sick, nigh unto death, and being raised up by the mercy of God as a metaphor for the church in Philippi. There was a selfishness in the church. There were those who sought unto themselves, their thinking, their priorities above others in the church. And to the extent that disunity disrupts our testimony, they were really seeking themselves above the gospel of Jesus Christ, weren't they? Don't lose sight of that. That if the root of our testimony that we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we shine as lights in the world. If the root of that is found in our unity, in our uh, 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 refusing to have murmurings and disputings among us, then if I take it upon myself to be selfish, to place myself in disunity with the body in a way that is carnal, in a way that is self-serving, I am not just serving self. I am not just maintaining my priorities. I am not just setting myself above the body. I'm setting myself above the testimony of the body. And in these verses, Paul was giving a metaphorical warning that as a church, they were sick. And if they did not solve it, correct it, that they were going to be sick nigh unto death. Because if they maintained that selfish mode of thinking, claiming their rights, maintaining their priorities, setting others aside for themselves, their church might still exist, but it would be a spiritually dead body, bearing no testimony for Christ or for the gospel, having no effectiveness in any spiritual way. And let it be known, this is the legacy of selfishness wherever it exists. Let's be clear about this. 
Selfishness in marriage, husband and wife. Selfishness in the family, among siblings, among parents and children. Selfishness in the workplace. Selfishness in the church. Selfishness is a spiritual and emotional parasite. It latches on to anyone who will tolerate, anyone who will show compassion or patience, and it will suck them dry. And the call within this book of Philippians is unity. If there's disunity in our institutional lives, if there's disunity in your marriage, there's selfishness somewhere. If there's disunity in your family, there's selfishness somewhere. And in our church, where there is disunity, where there is disharmony, there is selfishness somewhere. Now take note that disunity is not the same as disagreement, right? You and I can disagree about something and still do so in complete love and unity. That's not always easy, but if we're all doing our part, we can. My wife may not agree with me on everything, but there can be unity. And it's not necessarily unity above, uh, about the decision, but it's unity about the roles in the family. In other words, I'm the head of the home. Wives submit unto your husbands. Husbands love your wives. If I am making the decision with a full consideration of my wife and love for her, that doesn't always mean I'm going to give her what she wants, by the way. And if, if I am making this decision in, in, in that full context and my wife has complete trust in that context of love and so she submits herself to a decision with which she disagrees, there is unity, right? She disagrees with me, but I have made my decision knowing uh, uh, with, with a full context of love toward her. She knows my love. I've showed her my love. I know her opinion. I disagree with her. She submits herself to me. We have unity. The same can be said in the family, children and their parents. The same can be said in a church, church leadership, church decision-making process. The same can be said in any relationship. We can even put, we can take it to the workplace. We can take it to government. It breaks down a little bit there because those are not, there, there's the, 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 that's generally a secular setting, right? So there's absolutely no expectation that my, my boss or, or my government's going to care a lick about what I think uh, or, or actually regard me in any way, shape, or form. And they'll be judged for that according to the Word of God, right? Because they're supposed to. And so the same thing applies in principle. But when we get selfish and we pull back our love, we pull back our service, when I as a husband get selfish and I get affronted by my wife disagreeing with me, and so I selfishly hold my ground not on the basis of love and care, but on the basis of pride. The unity is broken down because there's selfishness now. We pull back our love, we pull back our service, and we begin to claim rights and demand satisfaction. And when I begin to get angry because my needs aren't being met, or because I'm not being heard or I'm not being understood when my focus in my marriage or my family or my church turns to myself and the same is said of others in, in any other institution, know full well that that institution is spiritually sick. Now, because there's some selfishness in your marriage or because there's some selfishness in our church and there's a measure of disunity, that doesn't necessarily mean we're sick nigh unto death, right? 
But the problem is selfishness can snowball, can't it? Selfishness can beget selfishness. I get selfish and then my wife starts to need, feel the need for self-preservation. Now he's taking advantage of me because I'm being selfless and he's being selfish. And then if she's not careful, then she starts to say, well, if he's going to take care of himself, I'm going to take care of myself. And then our marriage is sick, really sick. And then if that continues, it will become nigh unto death, won't it? In, in short order. If in the church, one person gets selfish and then someone else says, well, because that person gets selfish, he's taking advantage of the rest of us and he's kind of getting things that he shouldn't be getting or whatever the case may be, so I'm going to get selfish too because the squeaky wheel is the only wheel that gets the grease, right? So now we're all going to start squeaking and now we're all squeaking and our church will get very sick and it will, it will be nigh unto death and it will be death if there's no intervention. And God forbid that we should experience such things in our midst. We've perhaps seen it before. As we've watched marriages crumble or families spiritually splinter or churches die. And the call this evening is to be renewed in selflessness. To seek every man the things of others. To look upon the things of others. This is not just the difference between being disliked and liked in our communities. This is the difference between our children walking with Christ or walking away. This is the difference between our church being dead where we stand or being vibrant in our community. This is the difference between our marriages being a picture of Christ or being just like the world around us. Simply put, and this is not an exaggeration, there is no room in the heart of the spiritual man or woman to be selfish. And each kernel of selfishness in our hearts, again, we're human, things are going to happen, we repent, we get, we, 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 the just man falls seven times and riseth again. Every kernel of selfishness in our heart is a place that Satan can use to confuse and to discourage and to divide and to undermine us. And the question is, how are we doing this evening? Because this could be, as we walk down that path, a question of spiritual life or death. Not eternal life or death, right? But spiritual life or death. Husband or wife, have you been living selfishly in your marriage? Have you been, as we've already exemplified, making decisions that are for yourself rather than for your spouse? Child, have you been selfish in your family? Siblings, parents, have you been selfish in your interactions with your children? Children, have you been selfish in your interactions with your parents? Children, have you been uh, selfish in your interactions one with another as siblings? Well, so-and-so is just... So, uh, we, we, yeah, we were both told to clean the room and so-and-so doesn't want to, so-and-so wants to go play and so-and-so doesn't, wanna, doesn't want to get in trouble, so they'll clean the room and so I'll just sit back and let them do it because I know that, that they want to go play and so they are motivated to do it, so I'll just let them do it because I can. Selfishness. Church member, have you lived selfishly among the body? Of course, we are contending with this. We spoke of this this morning, Right? that as it relates to the various elements of how we are going about honoring the, the king and honoring the executive orders at, uh, at, uh, that, that are before us, 
we might have any number of disagreements as it relates to how this should play out, but one thing that we must not, one thing that we must search our hearts on is whether or not within our hearts there is selfishness or rebellion. Rebellion against our authorities or selfishness toward our brethren. That I'm not going to let so-and-so step on my toes. I'm not going to let so-and-so dictate what I do. Selfishness. The marks are plain, right? You can't see what's in the heart, that sickness. You can't see it in the church. You, 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 we, we, don't, we don't have a, a, a disunity meter in the church that we can just look at and, how, how unified are we today? Ding, okay, good. We're, we're, in, we're in good shape today. We, we don't have that. But what we do have is symptoms, right? Symptoms of the sickness. Division, discontent, murmuring, disputing, frustrations, offenses, conflicts. These are signs. These are signs of sickness. They're signs of selfishness. And when we see those signs, we need to address them immediately. Because if we, in any context of life, allow these things to continue, they will become spiritually life-threatening. So the call is that we would search our own hearts, repent if need be, become spiritual healthy, uh, become spiritually healthy once again. And God help us to do that. God help us to, become, to, to be a spiritually healthy church, a, to have spiritually healthy families and marriages, spiritually healthy as it relates to our job, spiritually healthy as it relates to our government. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.